Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. This time, we're talking China with one of the UK's biggest critics of the Beijing regime. Sir Ian Duncan Smith's outspoken challenges have angered the Chinese government so much, he's one of the seven parliamentarians to be officially sanctioned by the country. But why does the former conservative leader believe China is a systemic threat to our country instead of just the challenge that ministers use to describe it? And is this about economic competition or the risk of war? Or maybe both? Sir Ian has been talking to SITREP's Sean Greschak. Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, welcome to SITREP. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, before we get to the rest of the world and the many, many issues that we need to talk about. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about you. Uh, you served for six years as an officer in the Scots Guards. Um, how formative was that for you? And also, you do come from a military family uh, as well. Well, in my case, um, I joined the Scots Guards. I served out in um, Germany and Northern Ireland, uh, based in the Bogside when I was over there. Um, uh, actually, we lived out of um, uh, the car park. All the Masonic car park was just top of the wall. There was just a few huts in that uh, place, damp and cold, frankly, most of the time. But um, And then I was in Canada, I think, briefly while I was there. Formative, uh, yes, in the sense that I also served out in Rhodesia, uh, serving, working for um, uh, General John Ackland, who's now quite a long time ago deceased uh, but um, we had to bring the patriotic front into the uh, into the assembly areas and hold them there as it were whilst the elections took place so uh, we had a lot of spent a lot of time visiting them while I was doing it and I got involved in the Lancaster House agreement and the process was interesting to me and I realised at that stage in honest truth uh, I really wanted to uh, uh, ought to move over to politics because it was really the area I started to get a greater interest in rather than being the end product of what the politicians decide. I thought I might as well be at the front end of it really trying to make these decisions. And so that's what made me move over into politics really was what I learnt while I was in the army. And your father was in the Royal Air Force um, for some pretty uh, key moments of the Second World War. Yeah, I know. He served from... Uh, the back end of the Battle of Britain as a fighter pilot all the way through to the end of the war various locations obviously in the UK uh, in fighter command um, you know Spitfire pilot and commanding etc and then out in uh, North Africa uh, Malta who was at the defence of Malta before uh, the Allies then mopped up Tunisia and then moved into Sicily and he was over the Sicily campaign and all the way through Italy and then eventually came back here prior to going to Japan but that stopped because of the dropping the atomic bombs um, uh, very active tough uh, five gallantry medals you know was, you know the, uh, that generation was a remarkable generation they were really tough people five gallantry medals we could probably do an entire program on your father <coughs> by the sounds of it uh, um, but scrolling forward to 2024 uh, I want to talk to you you've spoken very uh, frequently about your concerns about China why are you so so concerned I think um, the free world is um, under pressure like it's not been since uh, the Cold War. I think we have uh, a new axis of authoritarianism uh, that is winning the war, as it were. It's a, it's a war of arms at the moment. could be one day. Who knows? But um, China is at the heart of that. China is hugely wealthy, highly successful. Uh, they are what the Soviet Union was not. They have the wherewithal and the money which the Soviet Union never did. 
they have the capability now. Uh, we've been handing them technology for the last 15 years, quite happily through private companies, etc., moving over there, getting their IP stolen. China's built up their industry in a way that now means that most of the stuff that you buy is probably made in China. Um, and at the same time, uh, they are strong, with President Xi, strong believers in authoritarianism. They don't believe in democracy. They think democracy is a complete mistake. They think it's an aberration, actually. I think he once said um, over the last couple of hundred years, whereas the natural order of government is to be authoritarian, not uh, to be democracies. And um, the, with them now is North Korea. Uh, North Korea is now supplying Russia with uh, weaponry. I'm absolutely convinced uh, quite a significant amount of that will be made in China and rebadged. China supports, obviously, financially and, and in many other ways. Um, Russia buys all the Russian oil, which is rebadged and sold in Yuan. And they've also now got very strong links with Iran. Iran acts really with China in the Middle East. And the Gaza issue was all about Iran, but it suits China, of course, for having another war because it distracts the Americans from the Ukraine, which helps Russia. So you can see how these things all come together. So I think, and their objective, China's objective and that of the others, is to is to bring others in. Syria's now come in in the Middle East on the Belt and Road Project, and they're working very hard in the Gulf. And the Gulf, of course, which is hugely dependent on oil, it does move towards China because China will take every bit of oil that they can produce. And so whereas the West is now talking about moving into net zero, um, uh, China talks about it but isn't doing anything of the sort. So all of that is really where we are, and we're being distracted. We've been cutting back our armed forces. We've been thinking that, you know, we can deal with this, and we're not dealing with it. And I think what's happening is a much more potent and dangerous situation is emerging from us than really existed even in the Cold War. World War Three. Well, I, this is at the moment all about uh, how do you govern and, and how you build your alliances. And uh, we've been, I think, pretty much across the West. I mean, Europe has been way below on their spending on defence. Uh, we suddenly learnt from the Ukraine war that the kind of war that we thought would never be fought again with huge minefields and trenches and stuff like that, it's back. Uh, we don't have the, the reserves that we used to have to fight wars on that scale. We have tiny amounts of, we seem to run out of ammunition stuff to give to the Ukrainians because we never thought this would ever happen again. Well, it is happening, and it's, you know, it's a big wake-up call to the free world, and we're all, and China and others look at us and see us all tearing ourselves apart under this ridiculous woke process and culture that's going on, where we're all at each other uh, internally, and they see the weaknesses of democracy as they think it, and that suits them as well. So uh, there's, there's a lot going on which isn't great, uh, and I just spend my whole time saying to people, you've got to think now as to democracy has to be fought for, freedom has to be fought for, um, human rights has to be fought for, because they're not there by, by normal means. I mean, if you think and look at the history of the world, it isn't one of constant democracy, constant freedom. It's mostly about authoritarianism, and that's what China and the others want to return to. Would you agree with those that say, and we are expecting the head of the army to be talking about this, that people should be prepared to, to be called up to fight? I, I, I think that our problem is that we don't have enough people serving now, so we don't have any options other than that that would have to happen if we entered into any kind of conflict. Uh, I fervently hope we don't, because, of course, the... Uh, the scale of warfare now is on a much much more dangerous level than we could possibly have experienced previously with the possession of nuclear weapons. But um, the reality is, if you look at Ukraine and Russia, that is the kind of war 
if Russia gets involved. And, and most of Eastern Europe is desperately worried about uh, the nature of a, of a Russia s uh, succeeding uh, in Ukraine and then turning their attention to test NATO uh, on NATO's boundaries. So all of this um, uh, is part of the problem that uh, we, whether we like it or not, we are in a contest. And the contest is about how do you govern people. Uh, and at the moment, we appear to be asleep at the wheel, as it were. And uh, quite a few significant elections right across the world taking place. I just want to come back to how you described China. You, you've, you've described it as a systemic threat to the UK. Can you explain that for the layman? Well, let's start by what China is internally. Uh, I am sanctioned by the Chinese government, as are uh, six of my colleagues um, in the Lords and in the Commons, for calling out evidenced as well the genocide that's taking place in Xinjiang so they are systematically eradicating an ethnic group uh, right in full view of the West uh, and that's a Turkic group called the Uyghur uh, and they don't like them because they're ethnically very different from the rest of China they're not Han Chinese they're Turkic in origin closer to those who live in around uh, Turkey as it were um, they're a significant population. The men have been shipped off to uh, basically slave labour uh, to build things, often that we buy uh, here in the in the West. And the women are uh, basically being forcibly sterilised, uh, often in the process of brutalised, raped, and the children are being taken off into re-education camps to become Han Chinese. So that's how they deal with their own population. They have the highest level of executions that takes place anywhere in the world. Iran is second. Uh, and they've uh, they've smashed the agreements we had over Hong Kong and arresting democracy campaigners. All of that's how they behave at home. So that is how they project globally. That is what they think is the natural order of things. So how do they pose a threat to us? Well, because uh, they believe that their system is the right system. And so Belt and Road, etc., is all about building these alliances, which they've been doing in full view of us. Um, and the price you pay for that is the way you govern and your linkages back to China. But do they pose a military threat to us? Well, they've been building their military dramatically uh, and technologically too. So uh, I do. Any government that is an authoritarian government that they threaten Taiwan, for example, and they want to take Taiwan back, uh, Taiwan history has never been one of continuous uh, uh, part of China. It's, it's, a, it's a complex history, but it certainly isn't. And the Taiwanese themselves are a democracy. So uh, they are uh, a friendly nation, Taiwan, at the moment. And therefore, losing Taiwan or letting China take Taiwan would be a major mistake. So they support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that puts you into the category of them being a threat. And uh, I think most of us recognize now that their capability is there to match that. So what are you saying the effect would be on the UK if the threats you, you talk about from China aren't neutralized? Well, we run the risk of returning to a, a kind of what we then had Cold War, but it could be also a hot war in certain areas. And we've you know drifted away from it thinking that can never happen again. But the answer is, we thought at the time, you know, this was the idea, and I think there was that wonderful lecture that was the end of history, which is the world is now going to be, democracy has triumphed, freedom has triumphed, that's it now, the end of all these communisms and the dictatorships. Not the case at all. Uh, what we have learned, and we should have learned it before, was that the reality is that democracy isn't necessarily a natural order. 
you know, you have to fight to keep those freedoms that allow the defence and the protections for ordinary people from authority of governments, etc. Elections, you know, uh, and we're seeing some of it now, are often seen as messy and difficult uh, and much cleaner in authoritarian states. And so, you know, this is a problem for us. We are we're now seeing the build-up of authoritarianism around the world. For the first time, I think, this last couple of years, authoritarian states now outnumber uh, democracies first time since the Second World War. So, you know, these are, these are part and parcel of the nature of the threat. What happens next is up to us. So what would you like us to do? Well, we have to recognise, first of all, we need to start looking elsewhere to do a lot of our business with because we're too dominated by China. We're dependent on China, which captures us and... And, and informs our decision making um, you know we've had uh, uh, all these various problems with China but they're very rarely called out governments don't want to upset China because they know that they're dependent on their production not just us by the way Germany is wholly dependent most of Europe is uh, in, in terms of production of goods China desperately wants to get level with us if not ahead of us on microchip technology Taiwan has that microchip technology America's taken it out of China now it's about, we're about 10 to 12 years ahead of the Chinese, they've not been able to make a breakthrough in this area, but Taiwan has that technology, so another reason why they, they would uh, get a huge advance is if they were able to take Taiwan one way or the other. Um, so all of these things are problems when we, we need to start talking to each other again about the nature of the threat. Uh, the government finally won't say the word threat, but I think most politicians accept there is a real problem with China at the heart of this for the very simple reason that they have the money, they have the wherewithal, something that the Soviet Union never really had. By the end of the Cold War, they were spending 20 25% of their GDP on defence, which is unsustainable. China doesn't have to spend that proportion because they've got a huge economy, and that's the whole point about where the threat lies. What about those that subscribe to the old adage of keep your friends close but keep your enemies closer? Um, you're clearly not in that camp. Why? No, because there's a difference between keeping people close in terms of the way that you deal with them in diplom diplomacy and uh, intergovernmental uh, issues. There's another way of being dependent. We aren't just close. We are completely dependent on China right now. Uh, and it's going to get worse. Um, as we go towards net zero, the great push for electric cars, some of us may debate whether or not that's the future uh, of net zero, but let's assume for a second, as governments do, they're, they're pushing for that. The producer of, of pretty much all of those electric cars in any volume is China. Uh, if you look at uh, Tesla, China. If you look at, uh, they have the world's domination on batteries. Uh, so they're battery factories, they're building them rapidly to meet the demand from the West. Uh, and uh, most of those battery companies are now being uh, pushed over to making cars as well. So they're going to flood the markets and they're beginning to do that with cheap uh, electric cars, for example. So our dependency on loads of things, plastic pots, right the way through to telephones, uh, China. Uh, and they intend to make that even more the case. But if we do shut down on them, isn't there a risk of, you know, the combined threat of them deepening ties with other nations like Russia and Iran, you know, that that becomes bigger than the sum of its parts? No, not really, because that's their plan anyway. So what you need to understand is that we should be diversifying. <laughs> that's the point. There's a lot of this stuff that could be made back in the West again. We now have robotics, we have uh, artificial intelligence, 
and we have real capability. A lot of this could be added value manufacturing, which could be done because it doesn't require cheap labor in the way that that originally drove us to these places like China to get it done. You could be reducing this again using proper technology. I'm not saying everything, but a lot of that could be repositioned back. And then, you know, other countries that we have alliances with and should have stronger involvements with, countries like India, etc., these are the areas we should be talking to. So it isn't that we've put all our eggs, or pretty much all of them, in one basket. That basket happens to be a deeply authoritarian, violent and brutal state. It's time for us to start changing that. And of course, at the moment, the eyes of the world are on what's happening in the Red Sea, uh, what's happening uh, between Israel and Hamas, Ukraine. Uh, do you feel that the eye has been taken away from, from China and our eyes off the ball? Because there are so many other things that our military are focused on and our politicians are focused on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Gaza is terrible, what happened in October last year, and uh, the subsequent war that's now going on, uh, all of that has taken the eyes of the free world onto that. And of course, what's the response to that? America now is questioning whether they should be supporting Ukraine to the extent they are. And uh, that debate, I was over in Washington talking to American lawmakers, trying to persuade them that Ukraine is critical to what happens. If Ukraine goes down, Taiwan certainly will be next. And what's happening in the Middle East will then be a game lost to us, as it were. And so uh, we have to see all these things as part of the jigsaw puzzle uh, of how this sort of nature authoritarianism is building around the world in key areas. It was a, it, Gaza is a phenomenal distraction as well uh, from Ukraine. Russia sits there needing Ukraine to be less potent, uh, and who knows what will happen next year, for example, if Ukraine doesn't get the money, doesn't get the weapons. Uh, it may even be a lot worse. So my point is... This is perfect for China and Russia, uh, what's happening in Gaza, brutal and bad as it is at the moment. It is also geopolitically perfect for them because it allows them to extend their dominance and takes the pressure off Russia. You've spoken at your disappointment at the size of, of our military. Um, do you feel our armed forces are currently fit to face the potential threats facing the UK? No. I think it's a simple answer to that because it's not we haven't based our armed forces on this kind of threat uh, and we're not alone by the way you have to look around Europe I mean Britain is ahead of the rest of Europe in all of this no question you know we have the best and some of the best equipped armed forces but we've learned a very brutal lesson in the last two years and that is that uh, all the assumptions we made about warfare have been turned on their head by the Ukrainian, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're now seeing lots of stuff that we assume would never happen, five-mile-wide minefields, the use of drones, the nature of how successful are tanks. All these are big, big questions uh, that are to, need to be answered, and manpower is critical in all of this. So the West has got a lot to think about on this and to recognize that we need uh, we need more potency if we're going to face this threat as it comes in, in the future. And I think the generals are all saying it and the admirals are saying it. We're, we're not there. So how much bigger should our armed forces be then? Well, it's difficult. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not a general. I'm not serving in the military. But what is clearly the case is I think they're too small right now. My personal view is I think we need to increase the reserve dramatically. It's something that's much cheaper, of course, than, than professional soldiers all the time, but it's something that, if you look at America, they have a very significant reserve. We, our reserve is still not 
very big and it needs to be bigger if you're going to have a smallish army you need a much bigger reserve to be able to come in so all of these things i know are being debated the defense committee i know people on it and they've been saying they've been warning about this they have so but it's difficult you know we're in straightened circumstances we've got inflation we've got real problems governments have to make choices about this and the government has said they're going to get to 2.5 percent of spending so that's all good but when they can afford it and so the rest of Europe is nowhere near that at the moment, and that's the other big argument. And speaking of money, the budget is coming up very quickly. Um, would you rather the Chancellor mm. use money for tax cuts or greater defence spending? Well, you've got to get the economy moving. Uh, one of our problems is you don't have the re- you don't have the wherewithal to spend on defence if your economy is in straitened circumstances. So the choices get more difficult. So we always talk about tax cuts. I prefer to say growth. So he's going to have to take the burdens off. We have one of the highest, uh, you know, because of all the crisis, because of the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, we have a very high level of taxation, and that came as a result of that. But we now need to ease that burden off the public so that they have more of their own money to spend. That brings in better tax revenues. So the, the lower the taxes, the more the revenues increase. The good old Laffer curve idea, which is that, you know, that's how it works. So we need to take the pressure off the public. That's all part of growing your economy, and a growing economy, 2.5% becomes a much greater sum of money and gives you greater potency. So there's a balance between the two. It's not just a choice. The reality is we do need to get the economy growing. Growing the economy will mean we'll have more money to spend on defence. And in terms of growing reserves, how do we do that? Well, I think it's a case of re-alerting the public to the nature of what we do. I think, um, you know, the problem for much many of the public they they don't really come into contact with the military in their daily lives and one of the pluses about having a, a larger reserve is that lots of those reservists will be working in different places different companies different factories and their stories will be interesting to those around them and that's important because it gives a, a sense of the military it gives a sense of what service is all about and i think therefore you offer all sorts of incentives for people to come and get involved When I was Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, I remember allowing the reserve to be advertised in the job centres and at the same time we opened up to say, look, if you go on your two-week holiday up until then, if you were on benefits, (laughs) you you couldn't do your two-week holiday, you had to report back. Well, we said, no, if you're serving on the reserve and you have to do a two-week military exercise, then that's fine. Uh, We let you go and do that and you won't have to turn up to show that you're still looking for a job. And it helps those looking for jobs. They went into work much quicker if they'd been a reservist as well. So all of that helps build it up. And I think if we do that, I think lots of people would get involved, but they just don't know about it. But do you think the public get the level of risk right now? And if they did, do you think that would lead to more people deciding to, to sign up? Oh, I think the public's well ahead of uh, the governments on this. Um, just go back to covid Uh, 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 just before Covid we fought to get Huawei banned a group of us uh, from the the latest iteration of the network Uh, and um, uh, what is interesting about it was the government was trying to defend the fact they should be in there Uh, the members of the public were definitely against it once they realised what was going on now through Covid uh, the mood of the public towards China has shifted dramatically, why? Because you know, COVID was a problem that originated from China, uh, and because of the China's determined secrecy over the whole point, we didn't get to know about it properly, so that we could start to figure out what to do with it. We didn't contain it, and before everybody really knew, it was a global problem, and millions have died 
as a result of that, which shouldn't have happened. And so I think the public almost immediately woke up to the idea of what happens when you have totalitarian states that don't play uh, in the same way that others will do about notifying the WHO, about getting all that on board. So all of that became, for the public, a sense of where their threat comes from. And I found that there was a much greater pickup. Uh, an acknowledgement that there is a real problem about this from there, and governments have trailed behind on this. Would you support conscription? Uh, I don't think you need conscription at this particular point, but what you need to have is make sure that you have um, uh, people get, understand what the nature of what it is they would go into, and there are lots of good reasons why you can jo go into the services, and particularly when it comes to reserves, I think you know you need to incentivise the attractiveness of that and the support that takes place for those that would be in the reserve. Um, so I, I'm, I don't think conscription will work at the state because you'd have to have a greater immediate presence of the threat before you moved into that. But I do think that we need to be doing more about you know, getting people to understand uh, the nature of service and why it's a good thing to do. When you look at the armed forces today, would the 18-year-old you still want to join up? Why did I join the armed forces at the time? Um, I did it really because I, uh, part of me said it would be fun, you know, it's going to, you know, um, possibility of action, uh, leadership, all those sort of things become interesting and important to you. You challenge yourself probably earlier than you would in most other jobs, you know, as a 21-year-old or a 19, 20-year-old, you know, you're going to be in command of people if you join or you're going to be risking uh, things that are happening as you've seen recently with Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. So those are the things that I was thinking of when I joined up. I hadn't thought about it as a long-term career for myself, but then I, you, know, you don't think that far ahead quite often when you're there. So, yeah, I think I would uh, I would certainly recommend it to anybody that, uh, that wants to, to have something to look back on, even if they don't make it a major career. Um, it's very important that they get that experience. And it also helps hone your own capabilities when you're having to make decisions uh, under pressure uh, in a way that you might not have to in a, in a domestic environment or uh, in a business working out of the city. And also, it's a lot more fun than sitting around shoving numbers around, as far as I can think, uh, just pushing money around. Uh, I think learning how to do that and deal with people is really important. So, yes, you would? Yeah, definitely. Do you think your father would? Uh, well, he joined, of course, because of the war, so uh, that's a slightly different issue. But, yes, no question at all. Um, uh, I think he is a... a great believer in uh, serving the armed forces and he became a regular and stayed on afterwards uh, but uh, yeah no 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 he um he wrote a very good book called spitfire into battle which if anybody is thinking about the service i'm not writing it's been out many many years you can get copies of it but there he talks about you know uh, uh, what it's like to lose friends uh, and command you know under pressure and these are uh, what takes place today so it's worth looking back sometimes to see how people coped uh, in those days and there were a lot of stiff upper lip stuff was going on in those days and nowadays you've got lots of people coming to help they didn't have any of that at all they just got over it so learning all of that gives you an understanding of what real command's all about Serene Duncan-Smith thank you very much indeed for joining us on SITREP Pleasure News, discussions and analysis This is SITREP